Hello, and welcome to the Gravel Ride Podcast, where we go deep on the sport of gravel cycling through in-depth interviews with product designers, event organizers, and athletes who are pioneering the sport. I'm your host, Craig Dalton, a lifelong cyclist who discovered gravel cycling back in 2016 and made all the mistakes you don't need to make. I approach each episode as a beginner to unlock all the knowledge you need to become a great gravel cyclist. This week on the podcast, I'm going to hand the microphone over to my co-host, Randall Jacobs, who's got Stephen Frothingham, editor and chief of Bicycle Retailer and Industry News, on the show to discuss his unique perspective on bicycle industry dynamics, the general bike shop and OEM ecosystem in particular. Steve is an industry veteran who approaches his work with warmth and curiosity that is so appreciated. His reporting continues to serve as an influential resource to everyone who works in the bicycle retail space. I think you'll get a lot out of this episode, learning a little bit more of the ins and outs of the industry as it all trickles down and has an effect on us as riders. Before we jump in, I do need to thank this week's sponsor, Dynamic Cyclist. The team over at Dynamic Cyclist has created a video library of stretching and strengthening techniques specifically designed around cyclists. The founders, Cyclists themselves found a niche in developing this content as it didn't exist before their efforts. They've created hundreds and hundreds of different stretching routines to focus on different parts of the body that affect your performance as a cyclist. It's something for me that has become super important. I've been following the routine since uh, around November last year, really specifically to work on lower back strengthening but I've found that I'm much more disciplined knowing that I've got these 15 to 20 minute episodes always available to me, both streaming from their website or also available from the app. I encourage you to give it a try. They've got a free one week trial. And if it works for you, they're offering Gravel Ride podcast listeners a 15% discount off monthly or annual plans. It's quite affordable. I think it's less than $100 for an entire year's worth of programming. I expect like me, I'll dip in and out of it with a heavier focus in the winter, but trying to stay on it as I realize that stretching needs to be part of my routine if I'm going to maintain my love and active cycling lifestyle, particularly on the gravel bike where we all tend to get roughed up a bit. Use the code THEGRAVELRIDE to get that 15% off. Just put it in the coupon code box at dynamiccyclist.com when you check out. If that sounds like it's up your alley, I hope you give it a try. Again, they've got that free one week trial, so why the hell not? With that said, I'm gonna hand the microphone off to my co-host Randall Jacobs and jump right into this conversation with Stephen Frothingham. You're an old hand in the bike industry in the journalism space. Give us a little bit of background about that. I started at Brain, I think I was the first editor hired back in, I think, 92. And then I left and worked for the Associated Press twice and then uh, came back into the bike industry to work for velo news for a few years uh left them went back to brain and then the company that owned velo news bought brain so i ended up back in that same company again which became outside so it, it, yeah it kind of feels like uh, even though i don't work for velo news again i feel like i'm back with the same crew uh i literally was in the same same desk same office for a little while so uh that, that seems to be Seems to be the pattern in my career here. Just to clarify for our listeners, uh, Brain is Bicycle Retailer, where you are currently uh, editor-in-chief, correct? Mm-hmm. 
tell us a little bit about the nature of that publication. So what role does it serve in the industry? Well, we, when we started it in 92, you know, the full name is Bicycle Retailer and Industry News. And uh, the and was important back then because the, um, the other trade magazines, and believe it or not, there were three others back then, they were all print magazines. We were the fourth. Um, but they had this real focus on kind of this old school dealer thing, like, you know, we're going to profile this retailer this month. We're going to do a story on, you know, uh, how to hire kids for the summer. We're going to do a story about how to display your tires. Um, and we're not really going to write about the industry, the supplier side. So we came along and we were bicycle retailer and industry news. And we used to kind of joke that what we're doing is reporting. We're telling the retailers what the uh, suppliers are doing to them this month, um, <laughs> which is maybe a little bit too cynical. But we we reported on what the industry was doing. We reported the news of what the supplier side was doing for the most part, which is what the retailers want to read. Um, most retailers... They might say that they'd like to read a story about how to merchandise their tires, but that's kind of broccoli. You know, what they really want to want to have is the, uh, the steak and potatoes of uh, finding out what one of their suppliers uh, just bought another company or just went bankrupt or just switched factories in Taiwan or, or something like that. And that's the kind of stuff that the, uh, the other titles were not doing back in the 90s, which is why... Uh, this is going to bring out the competitive bike racer jerk in me, but we put the other three out of business in three or four years. I think, um, it wasn't very long before brain was the only, uh, industry title in the U S and, um, to some extent, we're still doing the same thing. Obviously we've had to adapt to social media and the internet, which didn't exist when, when we started the magazine, but, um, we're still doing the same thing. We, we focus on news and, um, you know, we like to do some, we like to profile important retailers once in a while, but for the most part, uh, we still report on what the supplier side is doing with the knowledge that most of our readers are, uh, are retailers, independent bicycle dealers. I actually hadn't appreciated that you were on the founding team for bicycle retailers. So can you share a little bit more about that and who else was involved and how that came to be? Well, I didn't have an investment, unfortunately. Uh, I was, I think I was 22 years old or something. So I was just the first hired gun there. Uh, Mark Sani, who still writes for us, was the founding editor uh, and a partner early on. There was another partner named Bill Tandler who uh, passed away quite a few years ago now. Uh, so Mark and Bill were, were really the founders. And um, uh, I think they hired a uh, an office lady named Kathy, and then they hired me. And uh, that was kind of the start of the fun. And, um, you know, and then the company went through various different ownerships, uh, some of which happened when after I left when I was uh, outside the bike world for a while. Uh, sometimes I forget it went through three or four different ownerships. Uh, when I came back, it was owned by Nielsen of the famous Nielsen ratings, Nielsen, mm -hmm. which uh, owned uh, trade shows, including Interbike. And, uh, but we were actually operated by the National Bicycle Dealers Association, a nonprofit dealer trade group. 
Uh, so we were owned by Nielsen, which was kind of renamed as Emerald Expositions. Uh, so I think my paycheck came from, no, my paycheck came from the NBDA. So, you know, we went through quite a few years of being run by a very small nonprofit trade association. And then, uh, and then it changed hands. Uh, NBDA had some financial problems and uh, we were not exactly helping things. So uh, we got handed off to uh, what was then called Pocket Outdoor Media, a company that owned Velo News, they owned Velo Press, Strathlete Magazine. At that point, uh, Robin Thurston was a minority investor, I believe, in Pocket Outdoor Media. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, about a year or so after uh, Brain became part of that group, Robin became the CEO um, and started raising money to buy a whole bunch of titles, which you've probably heard about, including Pink Bike, Cycling Tips, Peloton, um, some uh, some bike events in Colorado. And then eventually the big purchase was raising the money to buy Outside Magazine. And um, the company, Pocket Outdoor Media, was, I think, I think Robin had actually hired a marketing company to come up with a new name for Pocket Outdoor Media because people thought Pocket Outdoor Media was a billboard company. <laughs> uh, and the sales reps didn't like that. Uh, so they were, you know, doing the marketing thing of, of bouncing all these ideas off the wall, coming trying to come up with a new idea and a new name. And then after they bought Outside Magazine, they're like, well, why don't we just, you know, rename the company Outside? So we became Outside, which things have been moving very quickly. It's, you know, it's a big change for me moving from, working for a very tiny little underfunded nonprofit trade association for bicycle shops and BDA to working for this multi hundred billion dollar startup tech, basically a tech company, um, big change. And uh, that's why the, the time, you know, I mean, I think back, it, it seems like, you know, a decade ago, but you know, it really, it's only been like two and a half years. So Robin, Robin Thurston is the current CEO of Outside Group, and he previously founded, is it uh, Map My Run? Map My Ride, Map My Run, my companies, sold to Under Armour. I think that was like a $160 million acquisition or something. I, I remember having this number offhand because it was part of my pitch deck for another company that I was trying to raise money okay. for. It's like, oh, here's a comparison point of this company that was acquired in the space. Yeah, I mean, Map My was kind of ahead of the curve with doing some of the stuff that Strava is doing now. And uh, now at Outside, uh, we have Gaia, which is a, a mapping app that's primarily used by uh, hikers and skiers. Uh, and then uh, Railforks, which was developed by Pinkbike uh, as a mapping app, mostly for mountain bikers. And it's quite so, well regarded. Uh, I've, I've seen yeah. in some of the forums, people are very keen on that particular application and the quality. Yeah, of the both there. of them are really good. They do have their niches. I use Gaia for backcountry skiing and it, it works really well. And it's, uh, uh, you know, we could go way down a rabbit hole, but, you know, why I choose to use Gaia when I'm skiing and why I use trail forks when I'm mountain biking and why I use, I don't know what else when I'm road biking. I don't know. But, you know, each has its own uh, its own advantages in different spaces. So, yeah, uh, Robin uh, made his fortune, I think. Fair to say in that company to uh, Under Armour. And then he worked for Under Armour for a while. I think he was the chief technology officer at Under Armour. Uh, left and did some other stuff and then eventually came back to this group. 
So you started when you were 22, essentially first hire for a bicycle retailer, this fledgling industry magazine with a particular point of view that, that resonated with dealers. What drew you to this particular space? You studied journalism in college. Were you an avid cyclist? Yeah, all that. Yeah. Uh, I was a cyclist from from day one. I started in BMX when I was a little turd. Uh, <laughs> I'm definitely, I'm totally of that age now, or, you know, I'm 55 now and I go to the shows and I see these retro BMX bikes that some of the companies are doing and my eyes just light up. It's like, oh, there's that red line pro line that I wanted when I was 14 that I couldn't buy. Now I can buy it. Uh, I've resisted so far, but yeah, I started in BMX. I did mountain bike races back in the eighties and uh, road racing and, and, uh, and yeah, then I, I got a journalism degree and I did work completely outside the bike world for about 10 years for the Associated Press um, covering presidential politics in New Hampshire. The presidential primary is a big deal. So that was really fun. I think I covered three or four primaries in New Hampshire, hmm. plus the usual AP stuff of plane crashes and lost hikers and maple syrup and uh, lost mooses and stuff like that. St standard Northeast fair. Yeah. Typical New Hampshire stuff. And remind me where you grew up. Yeah, in New England. Uh, I was born just a little north of where you are in Salisbury, Massachusetts. Mm. And uh, my family moved up into New Hampshire when I was a teenager. And then when I came back, when I worked for the Associated Press, I lived in Wolfboro, New Hampshire for about 10 years. So you and I, when we chat, tend to go off in various tangents. But so, uh, yeah. where would you like to go? Or or we can start with the email that you sent me yesterday about Shimano Qs. Yeah, I could interview you on that. What do you know? Well, you're, you're the one, the inside line. Yeah. You saw the press release. I don't release. have the inside line yet. You know, I'm just starting my research and I'm, I'm going to Taiwan next week. So hopefully I'll learn a lot more over there. Uh, but uh, it looks like a fairly significant development, this Q's thing. And I was sitting through, a, I think it was an hour long video recording from Shimano about it yesterday. And I, I got antsy halfway through and started calling people and emailing people and uh, the video was moving too slowly. So uh, <laughs> like, I need some more. I need, to, I need to check in with some people around the industry here to see what they think. For those listening, Shimano released a new, not just group set, but family of group sets on their kind of entry to entry mid-level. And it's significant for reasons that go beyond simply some new parts. They have a reputation for using constantly varying standards and interfaces and pull ratios, which is the ratio of cable pull to gear shifting. So how much cable pulled results in how much movement of the derailleur. Constantly varying that, not just year to year, but from group to group in order to avoid cross-compatibility with third-party components and even within their own groups so that brands don't mix and match, say, like want a higher-end quote unquote, a set of levers connected to a lower end rear derailleur because you don't see the value in the higher end derailleur. Well, they preclude that by adjusting the, the pull ratios from group to group. And so what they've done with Qs is make it such that the pull ratio is the same across all the groups, even with different speeds. And the thing that the major differentiator between the different levels is the number of gears. The cog spacing in the back is the same. And I think that that's quite significant. And it signals something too. I think it's very much in favor of riders. Uh, and I think it helps shops as well. I think it helps the industry more generally, but it's also indicative of a shift in the power dynamic in the bike industry. In many ways, SRAM is the new Shimano. They're in the ascendant. They have uh, a number of standards that they have put out there that have gotten adoption. 
they have ended through patents and in some cases litigation. And, and so I, I view it in the context of innovation and competitiveness in the bike industry. Yeah, that makes sense. I, th I think even Shimano used the word realistic, uh, meaning that uh, the new groups, uh, they like to say that the, the technology that makes them special is in the cogs, um, not in the chain, maybe not so much in the crankset or, or the derailleur. Uh, which allows mix and match. So if somebody wants to spec a Hughes cassette, whether it's uh, 9, 10, or 11 speed with a different crank, with a different chain, uh, it'll still work okay because there's nothing, it doesn't require any kind of special chain. And the, the magic mm -hmm. isn't in, in the chain, it's in the cassette cogs. Uh, so yeah, I think it's more realistic. I mean, it's obviously the development of this began before the pandemic and the part shortage that was through the pandemic, but uh, what happened in the pandemic with all these new third party, fourth party parts coming up and getting a second look, people taking a second look at uh, whether it's micro shift or uh, tectro brakes or whatever they could get. Uh, this really kind of seals the deal. This kind of tells you that for the next few years, we're probably going to see more and more of these mixed groups, at least at the lower price. This is all below 105 on the road, uh, below Dior. Uh, 12 speed or 11 speed on the mountain bike side. So everything that was cheaper than Dior and down on the mountain bike, everything that was cheaper than 105 is now Q's. Which is to say en entry level to uh, lower mid-level stuff, which is also right. good stuff. They have clutch derailleurs, 11 speed. It does look to be quality components. Yep. But it's yeah. not the electric shifting. It's not the 12 speed. Oh, of course not. Uh, no, that, that stuff's still locked down. So... Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, well, there is a DI2 group as part of this as the, um, more, more for the mountain bike, e-mountain bike group There's a DI2. Um, presumably sharing a battery. I haven't dived into that yet. Um, that's the one that has the, uh, uh the front freewheeling system and the anti-lock brakes that they launched at Eurobike last year. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You, you'll, you may recall that in the past I was looking to uh, create an open platform for bicycle electronics and software and was trying yeah. to corral the support of that. Um, all those third parties that, that Taiwan vendor base that was shut out of the, the SRAM Shimano duopoly. Um, mm -hmm. I think, uh, probably a little bit before it's time. Uh, certainly the, the appetite wasn't there for investments. Um, there was, there was interest, but not in, not any investment dollars coming in from the Taiwan side at that time. Uh, but since then we've seen, I mean, electronic is, well, now you have a protocol that you can lock down. And so you don't have to vary. It used to be that you vary pull ratios or some sort of mechanical, mechanical interface between components. Now you lock down the communication protocol and the power grid. And mm. in that way you, you constrain interoperability between components from third parties. Uh, and then you have a lot of patents around the brifter, which is, um, mm. I would argue, the the center, the nexus of power in the bicycle industry um, is mm. arguably the road brifter, the road brake shift lever. And with it now, the, you know, the, the calipers and, uh, you know, with electronic, the electronic protocol, power grid, things like that. Because if you control, you know, even if you just control all you've patented every single way that you can make a lever swing. Right. And, you know, and that, and then now you control this lever. Well, that lever dictates that the caliper has to be from the same producer as well. 
because of safety reasons, you can't mix and match a caliper with a different hydraulic brake system. And then for mm -hmm. the electronic, same deal, you know, it controls like you, you just have a closed protocol and nobody else can connect with that. And now you control the interfaces between the levers, the calipers, the derailleurs, um, and the bike itself. And now you can dictate, you know, we, we want this particular brake interface. And so we see, you know, uh, flat mounts and so on. We see the new universal derailleur hanger, uh, that SRAM introduced, which I haven't, I haven't gone deep on the patent yet, but I, I wonder, do you know if that precludes other companies from attaching a derailleur in the same way if they, if they forego that universal hanger? No, I think SRAM's being pretty open with, with giving licenses to it, but uh, I don't know about other third party. I mean, and at what point are we going to have another, you know, SRAM Shimano lawsuit, like from back in the 80s or 90s, whenever that was, that challenged the bundling, you know? Yeah. So at what point do these electronic um, protocols become open source because of an antitrust law, antitrust lawsuit? I think it's unlikely because I don't know who would challenge them at this point. It's uh, unless you are, unless you got something planned. Um, you know, we're we're a tiny little blip on on the grander yeah. um, bike industry, uh, and uh, like SRAM in nineteen ninety one. Yeah, well, so is it is it true? Or, or answer this however you like. Um, I have I wasn't around um, for you know at the time that that was happening. And so I get, I have second-hand information from people who were there or were adjacent to it. And then I have what I've read. But my understanding is, um, so SRAM was originally grip shift. Grip shift had a different way of twisting the grip on a flat bar lever to shift a rear derailleur. And right. Shimano would try to preclude compatibility by, again, changing the pull ratios so that SRAM's grip shift wouldn't work with their derailleurs. But then also by having these bundling deals where... They go to a bike company, an OEM, uh, original equipment manufacturer. So in this case, like Thesis, is a, my company is an OEM, specializes in OEM, Trek is an OEM, and would say, okay, you can buy these components individually, but if you buy the complete group set, i.e. you don't buy SRAM's thing, then you get a 20% discount, I think it is what it was. Could be. But, Sounds about yeah. right. And there was an antitrust suit that SRAM filed against Shimano. Um, yeah. and SRAM won. And as I understand it, that essentially funded SRAM's early rise. That's the reason why we have SRAM in that's, many ways. That's all. I mean, I think there's some other money behind SRAM, but, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's always been sort of the, uh, the, uh, the urban myth. I don't know that, that SRAM used that money to go out and, you know, buy all, all the things that they bought, rock shocks, true um, zip. Mm -hmm. whatever and uh sacks which nobody really remembers now but that was a pretty significant purchase uh sack not richard sacks the uh frame builder from connecticut but uh sacks of germany which uh made all the internal hubs and also made derailers and stuff and, and chains huge, too right and set his chains um which became sacks change which became sram chains um which are still made in portugal i believe I think so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, they, they acquired that factory, have it, you know, chain factory is no small thing. And, um, anyway, that's always been the, you know, the, um, 
the rumor, yeah, is that they used that cash settlement or, or judgment from Shimano to fund those. Uh, I don't know how true that is. Like I said, I know that there is some other money behind SRAM and there still is. Um, and some of those companies that they bought were uh, pretty distressed at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, Rock Chocks had had an IPO that uh, they were living at the top of the world there for a couple of years as a the public bike, company. The mountain bike boom. Yeah, and then that kind of crashed, and that's about when when SRAM got into the suspension fork business. Yeah, um, so they've been pretty savvy about the uh, the acquisitions they made, most most of which were back back in the nineties. Although, what have they bought recently? They bought um, Hammerhead. Hammerhead, that's an interesting yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and the power meter company. I don't know the power tab uh, with the bed, Quark, and then Quark and then, uh, um, was power meters um, and power tap, which they bought from Saris. Oh, that's right. What was left uh, of it? Shockwiz. Uh, Shockwiz. Yeah. And uh, uh, what was the other one? I was just gonna say they bought something else. Oh, time pedals. Hmm. So that really gives them you know, a lot of different, um, components and IP that they can then, uh, interconnect through that, the access, uh, protocol, which is a closed, I believe, Zigbee based, um, protocol. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, getting back to, you know, open versus closed standards and ecosystems and things like that. Um, it seems to be the trend in the industry as, as always to, um, to have walled gardens. Yeah. Yeah, and that's been fun. You know, it was fun to see when when Hammerhead uh, was had, had some DI two integration that Shimano shut them down. Yep. On after SRAM bottom, which was um, some pretty good industry gossip right there. Um, but yeah, I mean, everybody, it's been really fun speculating about what's going to happen. You know, with SRAM owning, uh, you know, the power meter company owning a pedal company owning a, you know, power tap, which made, which used to make power meter pedals, um, and then owning a, a head unit GPS company on top of that. And then, like you said, the whole integration with access and, uh, it's pretty fun. Yeah. It's the full stack. And it's way, fun I mean... seeing them battling, you know, setting up this battle, not only with Shimano, but with, with, uh, with Fox factory also. I'm waiting to for it seems very natural that a next step for them would to be would be to buy say a, a company that makes home trainers or even a company that does training software that um they might not want to go direct head to head with Zwift because Zwift has such a dominant position in that space and they don't want to alienate them or get shut off of that platform but um it seems like a natural next step to get into this burgeoning home cycling uh space which granted has tapered off a little bit since, you know, post pandemic, but I think is still, you're, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole range of cyclists who primarily ride at home and are doing competitions in virtual worlds. And I don't think that that's going to change as the technology gets better. Yeah. 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 That would make sense. I'm sure there's been all sorts of conversations and there's been a couple of brands that have come and gone, um, that, uh, you know, maybe, uh, SRAM is kind of, Bit its lip and said, "No, we're, we're not going to bid on that one, or we're not going to we're not going to overpay for that yeah. one." I don't know, but you know, you can look at the the number of indoor brands 
that have uh, had financial problems in the last uh, year and a half. And uh, even once before that, that just disappeared. Um, you haven't seen a current kinetic trainer on the market in a couple of years, I don't think. Yeah. So what else do you see happening in the bike industry? Um, so obviously parts shortages were the big story during the pandemic. Now we have uh, parts being you know, liquidated through various channels and presumably is that's going to accelerate uh, post Taipei show coming up in, uh, in Taiwan in uh, the end of March. Yeah, I think so. I think there's still some, some shortages I hear on the road bike component side. I guess you'd know more about that than, than I would. Um, Saying group sets or. Yeah. And, and the bikes that those group sets hang on, you know, I think, hmm. um, you know, if you talk to dealers, it's, uh, you know, they have all the, $900 mountain bikes they can, they can eat, uh, or even I think the 1500 and $1,900 bikes, but the, um, the mid to high price mountain bikes are, are a little bit harder to get. And I think also the, um, mid to high price road bikes are hard to get. And, um, and there's kind of a shortage of, there's kind of a dearth of, of, uh, of really affordable road bikes. Mm. Um, I think. Uh, there's not a lot of groups there, you know, I mean, SRAM's got Apex and then, you know, Shimano hasn't been, had a real good road group uh, below 105 for years. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see how Q's affects, affects that. Going well, on their, their transition to 12 speed too. Um, and they had a, a factory catch on fire just before the pandemic, right? Yeah. What was that? It was a like an anodizing factory or something i know they were making some real high-end stuff like they were making like the xtr crank you know and when xtr went to 12 speed i think they couldn't get a crank for it for like two years right mm. and then they were like relabeling dior xt cranks which people were pissed about and uh, uh yeah i don't know it, it's yeah fires in the bike and factory fires in the bike industry that's that's been uh yeah, that's been a gossipy thing going back, you know, 50 years, I think. You can get some old timers telling you about famous fires and how they couldn't get such and such for, for five years after that fire. And sometimes I wonder how much of it's urban myth, you know, and people just blaming things on their inability to produce stuff. They blame it on a factory fire. Did you hear about that? Come on, the giant factory burned down last year. And uh, I think especially before the internet, who would check, you know, it's like, oh, I don't know. I heard that like the van sneaker factory burned down last year. Didn't you hear about that? That's why I can't get those van sneakers I've been looking for. And before the internet, it was pretty hard to look that up. Now it's a little bit easier, you know. Now you've been, so I think probably both of us have been talking to a lot of dealers lately for different reasons. Um, with with me, we've been building out our, our dealer network for our Logos Wheel program. Um, right. and I'm curious to hear, I'll share a little bit about what I've been hearing and I'm curious how that, um, relates to, you know, some of the things that you've been hearing from dealers. So some of the things I've heard is, um, well, one, you have, uh, essentially you weren't able to get product for a long time. A lot of dealers over-ordered or ordered the same thing from multiple sources, hoping to get it from somewhere, um, sooner rather mm -hmm. than later. And then all of it got dumped on the, on dealers in the fall. And over the winter, mm -hmm. at exactly the time when you know nothing is selling, generally it's it's the the doldrums of the the bike uh, selling season and cycling season in North America, anyways. But then also, you know, people 
uh, with with the country opening up post COVID, um, you know, the bike boom was was coming to an end, and it wasn't clear, you know, where things will, you know, how that will level off, and how much lag there will be where everyone who got a wanted a bike got a bike, and you know the you know, at, at what point, and, and, you know, the second hand market will start coming down in price and that'll become more compelling. So how long will it take for this lag of, of certain types of components to work its way through the space? Um, and it's been interesting too, you see, um, an ex am I right that there's an acceleration of the big brands buying shops? Uh, depends on what time scale you're looking at. I, you know, I don't, I think, um, I think that slowed down in the last six months or, or nine months. Uh, there was a big acceleration, you know, in, in 2021, especially. Uh, I think it was 21 when, you know, Trek had been buying shops left and right. Uh, Specialized had not. And then yeah. um, when Mike's Bikes sold to uh, Pawn in, I think, I want to say that was 2021. Pond being the owner of uh, Cervelo, Santa Cruz, and a handful of other brands. And Mike's Bikes yeah, being a I, big multi-store chain, mostly in in the NorCal, um, yeah. you know, Bay Area. Yeah, and they were, the, I think, the single biggest specialized dealer in the country and one of the, or maybe the most important markets in the country, the Bay I Area. Think, I think Eric's was their biggest. I think Mike's Bikes was number two. Um, but be. certainly the Bay yeah. Area is huge and a lot of... Um, you see a lot of S works, you know, $15,000 bikes rolling around the Bay area. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot more of the high end stuff than, than Eric's sells. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, and it did, and it did kind of seem like specialized had all their eggs in that basket. Um, they didn't have a lot of other dealers. It's just, Eric, I mean, uh, Mike's just ruled the roost anyway. So yeah, specialized really woke up. Uh, that was that was the wake up call for Mike Senyard was, uh, oh, my God, we're we're losing our distribution. Um, and it came on. They lost some other big, just uh, big retail distributions like uh, um, Abel's in in uh, Hill Abel down in Austin, Texas, which was a huge specialized dealer. The Trek walked in and bought um, all of a sudden specialized lost its biggest dealer in Austin, Texas, which is a, you know another one of the handful of very biggest markets in the country and growing uh, growing rapidly with a lot of deep pocketed folks as well who tend to buy their their high-end stuff yeah. yeah yeah so all of a sudden specialized uh said we've got to get into buying shops and uh they were running around buying a lot of shops um i think they did not have the system set up that trek did for uh processing these shops once they had acquired them uh so it was a little bit more chaotic whereas i think trek had built up to it slowly and they had you know, from what the stories I've heard of, you know, Trek has these SWAT teams that come in when they buy a shop, you know, there's just, boom, uh, you know, 20, 20 people come down from Waterloo and, and fill up the hotel rooms in whatever town that they just bought the dealership in and just handle that transition. You know, they usually shut down for a week or so, pop up some new signs, change over the website, uh, make some people some offers and, uh, and they're, you know, kick out all the other brands. And uh, they're up and running again in a couple of weeks. And um, they've got it down to a science now. And uh, I don't think Specialized ever quite got to that. It was more like, uh, yeah, okay, we bought you. Um, keep running. We'll talk to you in a few months when we need something from you. Uh, that was some of the impression I got anyway. I think Specialized also was overpaying for some of the shops from some of the stories I heard. 
Mm. But um, but I think it all slowed down a lot last last year. I think with the um, you know with the economy and I think um, the cash flow for companies like Specialized Antrac I think became harder. And there's been a handful of acquisitions in the last nine months, but it it really slowed down a lot. And um, I haven't heard of very many recently. We don't hear about them all because both. Both Trek and Specialized uh, tend to be really quiet mm. when they buy a, a shop or a chain of shops. Uh, but I haven't heard many rumors in the last three or four months. I've heard, granted, I don't know the uh, the dates on these, but as I've been talking to dealers, I've heard about offers being made. But those offers may have been made, you know, six, nine months ago, a year ago, or something like that. Um, but there's definitely been a lot of... Um, a lot of conversations being had along those lines over the past year, year and a half or so. Um, and it's interesting, you know, there's this long standing conversation in the bike industry about, um, you know, the dynamic between or the balance between uh, direct consumer sales over the internet, which is growing for obvious reasons, and the pivotal role that the bicycle shop, particularly independent shops, play um, as a hub for the cycling community. And how do you, you know, how do you maintain this critical bit of community infrastructure um, in a in a world where you know increasingly people can buy things very conveniently over the internet and have it delivered, um, you know, directly to them? Now, this you know, service has for a long time um, been the bread and butter of shops, and a lot of shops pre-pandemic were at least telling me um, that they as much as they spent a lot of their money on having bikes on the floor, most of their income, most of their net profit was coming from um, service and parts and accessories, uh, which is in some ways, you know, supplemental to service. Cause when you go in for maintenance, you're getting chains and in other service parts. Um, but how do you, how do you see that evolving over time from your vantage point? It's been hard. I mean, uh, when you hear that, you think, well, why don't you do a service only place? And a lot of folks um, are a few folks are, I'm not finding a whole lot of great examples of people that have been raging successes doing that. Um, uh, you know, the whole, the whole mobile service thing has been flat at best for the last two or three years. Um, you know, I know that um, a few people that have gone that way in um, in the Boulder area haven't been hugely successful. I think there might be a couple that are still running, but um, the problem is that you just lose that volume. You know, whether you make a lot of money on a bike sale or not, it's still you know a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, five thousand dollar bike sale. You know, for some shops in Boulder, I know you were here and visited some of them. You know, they pretty regularly are selling eight and ten thousand and twelve thousand sure. dollar uh bikes and you know the profit margin on that might not be huge and you might say well why does that guy even you know still sell moot spikes um he can make more money building a wheel or you know just charging someone a few hundred dollars to install a new campy group on a moot's frame um but he, he needs that that dollar volume uh, from the bike sale to pay the rent mm. um so there, are, there haven't been as many examples of that as you would think. Um, 
you know, going back five years, going back 20, 30 years, people have been talking about, well, hey, we make all our money in service. Why don't we just do service? Hasn't worked for many people. Um, I think people expect bike shops to have bikes. And uh, I think the bike shops need that, that volume to make it work. Um, you know, some shops have been, have found some supplemental income doing more different types of service, whether it's, you know, whether it's bike fits, whether it's click and collect fulfillment or uh, doing warranty service. You know, I know I, I talked to a guy at Cabda who does warranty service for one of the better known direct to consumer e-bike brands. And uh, he makes a pretty significant, very high margin chunk of money uh, just from dealing with warranty service from people that buy these bikes online and then have, have whatever troubles and the, uh, the brand reimburses him uh, pretty generously. Um, yeah. So there's all sorts of uh, kind of ancillary things around the edges that people fill in, but that guy is still selling a lot of bicycles. Mm -hmm. uh, he still has a warehouse full of them. <laughs> and uh, um, As so, do a lot of people right now. Yeah, especially as we, so, we were saying on the on the more entry level um, in particular. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. I haven't seen there's there's examples here and there. Yeah. Of, of the people who are, are focusing on the service or are looking into, you know, more of the showrooming uh, fulfillment, click and collect kind of models. And, there, you know, there's a million different models, as you know, mm -hmm. Um well, and, and click and uh, but, collect. You know, I'm not. I'm not finding like, like wholesale. You know, all the bike shops are going out of business, and all of a sudden we have a whole bunch of just little fulfillment showrooms around. Um, it is happening, but not on a huge scale. You know, I mean, what specializes doing? I don't know how many of these fulfillment centers they have. Uh, that's one of the things they did up in Northern California, where um, after they lost Mike's, was opening up these little fulfillment centers. They would just rent a warehouse space in the, you know, in the business park somewhere hmm. and hire a couple people to assemble bikes and give them a truck and they would run around and deliver them. Um, oh, that, that was basically um, VeloFix's pitch to the OEMs in the yeah. day. Yeah. Uh, VeloFix yeah. Now, uh, being a van-based you know, service operator. Yeah. And I know you know this. Seems to be doing a better job of that than, than maybe VeloFix was. Um, VeloFix. Velofix, a little bit different I, model. Yeah, I had spoken with Velofix a, a couple of times, and not only could I not understand the value to us as an OEM as a brand, but I couldn't understand a you know they they required a huge upfront uh, investment from their franchisees to mm. not just buy a van, but outfit it a particular way and have it oh, Velofix yeah. branded, um, and then you know you're paying a uh, I think an upfront it might've been an upfront fee and then a recurring fee and then a percentage of your income to this company. And this company is supposed to drive business to your franchise, but really in a way they're kind of intermediating you. And at the end of the day, you know, and I'm curious, what do you think about this? Um, I, I had always talked, uh, spoken to the van based folks that I knew and said like, you know, at the end of the day, you're, your brand is yourself in the quality of service and your engagement with your local community. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's no big um, company 
uh, I think can substitute for that. And I think the bike space is, is that might be more so the case than in other spaces. Like you have this particular mechanic, uh, because the difference between a good mechanic, a skilled mechanic, a mechanic who cares, uh, and, and does a good job, um, and is engaged in, in their community, the difference between that and somebody who doesn't, somebody who doesn't have the skills, somebody who, you know, it, it could be the difference between a safe bike and an unsafe bike amongst other yeah. things. Yeah. Um, well, so another topic that you and I have touched on in the past is, uh, you know, the supply chain and risks to the supply chain. Uh, I've seen a couple of articles, I believe in your publication, uh, talking about, um, the increasing concerns about exposure to, uh, growing hostilities between, uh, the U S and China over, uh, Taiwan. And I'm curious, what have you been hearing, seeing, uh, with regards to, um, any sort of changes being made on the, uh, upstream for a lot of companies, um, both, um, OEMs who are sourcing in Asia, but then also say Taiwanese companies and so on, uh, who are producing, um, you know, what, what changes are you seeing? Are people, is that accelerating at all with the, uh, increasingly hostile rhetoric? Uh, yeah, but you know, it's lower than maybe I would have expected. Um, and that, you know, that might not be due to reluctance, but just the fact that it's, it's a hard task. Um, yeah setting up a, a bike factory or uh, in a new country and building the infrastructure around it uh, to make that work, particularly during a pandemic. Um, yeah. yeah. So, you know, going back to stories I was writing two years ago, you know, I, I think I saw just recently that Velo Saddle opened their factory in Vietnam, I think it was. Makes sense. Um, that they had been working on for like three years um and then they just they were ready to turn it on when the pandemic started and then they just um sat on those plans for a couple of years but yeah velo saddle moving out of taiwan or supplementing their taiwan factory with uh, a vietnam factory is a big deal and um you know and at eurobike last year i had a lot of talks with people about um them setting up different factories in Eastern Europe to serve the European market. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't, we just saw SRAM investing in a new factory in Taiwan. So, uh, there's not a, there's not a mass exodus yet. And I think people are, are finding it's, um, fairly hard to operate in some of these other countries. Cambodia, I think turned out to be more of a challenge than some people thought. Sure. Um, you know, there's stuff moving towards Malaysia, Singapore, I think. Um, and Viet they, uh, Vietnam has been up and down. They had more COVID problems than than some areas, I think. So, yeah, it's a very slow movement, I think. You know, um, you know, Trek hasn't broken ground on a giant new factory in, in Waterloo, as far as I know, or, or, or in Mexico or in uh, Bulgaria, you know, uh, <laughs> well, that, that's a whole, I mean, it's a related conversation, um, and a whole other can of worms that we could crack open. Um, so one, you know, we, we have looked, um, at various times over the years at what it would take, um, both for us to do more production domestically. Um, but then also 
um, for more production to be done domestically in a general sense. And uh, I'll give an example. Um, recently, I was looking at uh, you know, developing and sourcing a metal frame, either steel or titanium. Um, we'll, we'll stick with steel. It's an easier example. Mm -hmm. So um, called a, a few different outfits. And uh, well, one, there isn't really anyone who's mass producing steel frames in the US. When I say mass producing, like doing you know, thousands of units at a go, um, with the exception of maybe Kent. Detroit. Uh, Detroit bikes. Mm -hmm. Are they, and they're serving as a contract manufacturer. Mm -hmm. Might ask for an intro at some point. Um, <laughs> That's Tony Carklins. Oh, okay. Who, uh, who bought, um, he and his partner bought Time, mm -hmm. which is making carbon frames in Europe somewhere, Slovenia. Okay. One of those European countries. countries. Yeah. Um, and then that company, it's called Cardinal Bicycle Works, I think, uh, also bought Detroit. Uh, they're, they claim to be the biggest steel frame maker in the US, and uh, they're making stuff under their own name, and they're doing a couple other contract things. That, they, made some, they made some Schwinn Varsities a couple of years ago. I mean, I think that was only a few hundred units or a thousand or so, but they actually made a they brought back the varsity made in made in Detroit. Well, one of the the things that's great to hear, and I'm going to follow up on that. Um, one of the things that kept coming up as I was having conversations here was there are essentially two primary um, sources uh, brands that are selling uh, tube sets, unless you're sourcing factory direct out of somewhere in Asia. Uh, you have Colum you have uh, what Columbus, some in some Reynolds. And yeah. one of the, one of them has been struggling with supply, and both of them are are quite expensive in the U.S. vis-a-vis -vis what you can get comparable tube sets for in Asia. And so, when you combine mm -hmm. those two factors of both more expensive raw stock and the fact that you can't, you don't know it's going to be available, and you only have two supply two primary suppliers, versus if I want to make uh, a frame somewhere in Asia, I have countless tube suppliers. Now, don't necessarily want to use just any of them, but even the the higher end ones, of which there may be a handful, they still have the all these other factories kind of nipping at their heels, and that you know drives innovation, that drives uh, you know them to build the sort of um, you know production facilities that can handle scale, that are responsive. Uh, they know if they can't deliver on a tight time frame for a reasonable price, that someone else is going to develop that capacity to do so, um, and that goes across every single thing that you could want to source for a bicycle, whether it's something like a carbon component you want to develop, you have any number of facilities where you could co-develop yeah. that, that component and they'll even provide the engineering. In some cases, they'll amortize the tooling over the, over the units, which is to say like spread the cost of the tooling over the units, the, the tooling costs. And you know, my tooling cost for a frame is on the order of like 8,000 bucks a size. Hmm. Um, and I could have that built into the price if I do enough volume. That's, you know, you combine all of these factors and, you know, going back to the issue of, of Taiwan. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me that you're not seeing moves en masse just because you have such deep and interconnected supply chains there. And even like when yeah. you get your goods quoted, they quote it um, not out of the factory, they deliver it to your door and that's just expected. And when mm -hmm. they say they're going to deliver it, generally they're pretty on time, um, particularly, you know, the, the, 
the better vendors out there, the more professional ones, the Velo, uh, you know, Velo makes not just saddles, but bar tape and they do most of the high-end stuff in the industry. Uh, still, right. there are a couple of competitors, but, um, yeah. and it's because they just do such a great job. Um, and that efficiency and, you know, another example, I was sourcing stems years ago and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, I live in a, I live in China for a number of years. Uh, I bet you I can find a better deal somewhere in China. I couldn't. Taiwan had better pricing on a superior product. Um, and it's because Taiwan had um, invested in, you know, factories like uh, JD. Um, their trade name is TransX. Um, mm -hmm. They manufacture for any number of brands. They did all of our uh, cockpit stuff uh, for Thesis. Yep. And they just have a very well-run production facility and these huge forging machines and really high quality tooling. And they can just crank out high quality 3D forged stems all day with that high quality and without a, a huge, with a less and less human intervention in that process. Um, and, you know, do it at a price that makes it such that, you know, there's no point in going somewhere else um, because most of the cost is not associated with the labor. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that makes sense. It'll be interesting, uh, you know, I'm, as you know, I did my, my graduate studies in US-China relations. And so it's a situation I've been following quite closely. Um, I guess uh, if something does happen there, uh, the availability of bike parts will be the, the least of everybody's issues. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, there, there won't be many parts of the economy that won't be affected uh, if something happens there, but um, the bike industry will not be an exception. Yeah. Um, except for maybe on the service part, right? You can still, uh, you can secondhand, still secondhand stuff will be, um, <laughs> the secondary market will be booming. Yeah. Stock so, up now. You buy your, uh, buy your HP cassettes now. Uh, yeah. that's well, so to, you know, to wrap up here, um, what do you see going forward? Um, from in, in very open-ended question. Uh, what are you excited about from a technology standpoint? What are you seeing um, in terms of, uh, you know, innovative business models or distribution models or uh, just trends in the in industry more generally? Well, there's one word that we haven't used so far in this call, e-bike. Sure. Um, you know, there's still, there's still some growth there, I think. Um, what do those stats look like right now? It's not good stats. There aren't any. I don't know. You know, you can just read the tea leaves and see that, you know, there's been some discounting here and there. Um, even some of the low price brands that were scaring the hell out of everybody a year ago um, are now blowing out prices, which is not good news, but still um, kind of suggests that the uh, the uh, demand has, has slowed a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, it's exciting to see uh, the growth in the cargo bikes, you know, um, you know, I know Specialized finally did their public launch of their globe, <laughs> their globe this week. Mm -hmm. Trek launched the e-cargo bike uh, a month or two ago, I think. Um, there's some others coming around. Turn seems to be kicking ass. Um, and uh, not to mention Rad Power. Um, so that, you know that's that's still exciting. There's still growth potential there. Uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get to European numbers where you know, like in the Netherlands, where I don't know, 
65 or 70 percent of the bikes sold there are e-bikes now you know where in the u.s it's probably 12 percent or something i don't know we're not going to get there i've been saying that for years but you know even if we go from 12 percent to 18 percent, that's uh, a lot of growth and it's also um you know a high average selling price of these things you know it's one mm -hmm. thing to talk about kent selling 89 dollar 20 20 inch wheel bikes to walmart but when you're talking about somebody you know when you know the low price leader is selling bikes for 1400 bucks uh e-bikes yeah you know and then you know and, and specialized just brought out their you know their discounted affordable e-cargo bike which i think starts at 2500 bucks or something it's a big <laughs> it's a big difference there um so you know turin is selling these you know these little electric minivan bikes uh you know for three four or five thousand dollars regularly then another thousand dollars in accessories on top of it um so uh not to be too focused on the dollars and cents here but i am a, i am from a business magazine so sure. yeah um so yeah that's exciting and uh you know yeah there's there's it's it's fun to see the growth in the gravel bikes um and uh and the activity around that uh the way the events are going and the competition is is really interesting um and the, and the community was, dynamics in the gravel space too it seems to yeah. have remained a lot more accessible even as you have more elite level events and so on showing showing up you still have you know lots of local events and it's a it's a version of cycling that is well it's a very versatile machine and it gets you off the road which addresses uh the the thing that comes up in survey after survey as the biggest limiter uh for people getting on bikes which is fear of cars you know the safety concerns yeah yeah, and I'm not sure what I think about that. I think it is more accessible than, you know, old school, you know, USA cycling, road racing, um, I guess. Uh, but, you know, last time, I mean, for me, it, it, I don't have a whole lot of interest personally in doing a lot of the events, maybe a couple a year. But, you know, mostly I, what I like about gravel riding is just being able to go out and explore and um ride by myself or with a, a couple of friends, but not necessarily pin a number on, even if I do pin a number on, it's not really to race. It's just, uh, you know, an excuse to ride with some people and have some rest areas where I can get free food along the way. Um, yeah. instead of having to fill up my water bottles in a Creek somewhere. So, um, but I don't know, I went to, I went to a big gravel race, um, last spring and, it, it didn't look very accessible to me. You know, I saw a lot of people pulling up in sprinter vans with a couple, you know, $8,000 bikes on the back bumper and, you know, the carbon wheels. And, you know, there was a nice dinner out and it was during COVID. So everybody was eating outside and they had the streets blocked off. We're all sitting out on the tables on the street. And uh, it was, it was kind of fun. It reminded me of, you know, Norba racing from back in the day, but, uh, but then, but then, yeah, I'm looking around and I'm seeing a lot of pretty well-heeled middle-class yep. white people with nice cars and carbon bikes with carbon wheels and a whole lot of money invested. And I'm like, I, I don't know well, about and, the accessibility of this. Well, and and yes, that absolutely exists. And that's a, that's a perfectly fine thing. Um, 
you know, there's, there's a place for everybody. I, I think what I'm referring to more is, well, one, what you're describing as like going out solo or with some friends and, you know, going out on the road, leaving from your back door and then going out on an adventure mm -hmm. and like experiencing right. your area from a different vantage point. Um, there's also kind of along those lines, uh, the bikepacking phenomenon, which mm -hmm. to some degree is a little bit like the SUV phenomenon that people are buying bikes that they could go bikepacking with, um, but not necessarily doing yeah. it. But you, but you yeah. see more and more of that people doing an overnight or a couple of days or something. Mm -hmm. um, but then lots of just, uh, at least here in New England, I've been to a few very kind of small, intimate types of events. Maybe you have a, a couple of hundred people show up and there's a, a you know, a, a wood-fired um, uh, pizza oven going and, you know, local uh, brewery supporting and it's to support uh, some local cause. And maybe they have a podium, um, but but not really. It's like, that's not the point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I think uh, the whole, the way the competition goes, um, you know, I don't know how many people are interested in the, and even uh, from a spectator point of view in the racers, I, I, a few people are, I mean, we could get into the whole cycle. It's not super disaster. interesting. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I'm a nerd. I mean, I'll, I'll, man, I, last week was, I, I was watching Milan. I mean, not Milan summer, Perry nice and Tirreno Ardiatico, you know, back to back every morning. I mean, I'm a total bike race nerd. I love it. You know, I, I did used to be the editor of Ellenage.com. Uh, and I couldn't even tell you who the top gravel racers are, you know, in the U S and I don't know how many people care. I know, you know, we, at outside at bellanews.com and cyclingtips.com, we write a bit about that. Betsy Welch is doing a great job, but, um, I, I don't know how many, you know, I'm, I'm interested in doing gravel events. I'm interested in the gravel equipment. Um, when I hear about an event, I think, oh, that might be nice to go to some year. I'd like to do that and see what it's like to ride in that part of the country on those kind of roads. Uh, but do I want to read uh, a 2000 word interview with the guy that won the pro race? Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm with you. I think that the, um, the more interesting story is the the story of your own experience of the events. You know, you go and you do something that is long and maybe has some technical sections and you're um, linking up with different groups along the way, unlike say a, yeah. a cross country race. Um, so cross country race, you tend to be, you know, it's a, it's a time trial in which you have some yeah. people in the way sometimes. Um, and road in the way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, then I'm, road. I'm usually the one that's in the way of some other people. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, that, that was my discipline back in the day. Uh, but with gravel, you have, I mean, uh, I know quite a few people, myself included at this point, I'm no longer, I no longer do these events to compete. I do it as a way of connecting with folks, like being out on a ride and you end up just uh, linking up with different groups and having this kind of shared ordeal of slogging up that hill with a group or riding into the wind with another group and, you know, making friends along the way. And those are the types of dynamics that uh, I have I haven't done a ton of the um you know the the big the big banner events for you know gravel series and so on. Uh but those are the dynamics that I'm seeing at the again, these more intimate local types of events that I think when I talk about accessibility, that's that's where um my heart is. You know, things that yeah. are much more about bringing people together and and providing a shared experience, a platform for a shared experience that people 
uh, find um, meaningful and not just yeah. a competition. So. Yeah. And just from, our, you know, from an event point of view, just the practicality of it now, I mean, we're, we're, we're losing paved roads where we can have a race. I mean, even just watching, watching the two races in Europe last week, um, how many of them they have to go through these damn traffic circles. I mean, the, the last 10 kilometers are scary now because there's a, there's a traffic circle every five blocks and yeah. uh, all these, you know, the road furniture is just getting worse and worse. And, that's been happening in the U.S. for years. You know, there's been all sorts of road races that have had to be canceled just because of all the development and the traffic and the, the road designs make it impossible to hold, hold a road race there anymore. Yeah, famous Morgul Bismarck circuit outside of Boulder is just unrideable now um, because of all the traffic circles and things. Yeah, and Boulder's a very Boulder's a very particular place. Um, you've been there for how many years now? Uh, about fifteen. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I haven't been going there quite that long, but, um, I did do the whole kind of dirtbag privateer pro thing at one point. Um, yeah. so got to ride in a bunch of different places and obviously for my work, I'm traveling a fair amount and the, um, the number of strong riders you have where you are is pretty outstanding. It's kind of hard to go out on a ride and not cross paths with some past or current national champion or Olympian. Um, yeah. and you also have, um, unique in the U S is some of the best bike infrastructure anywhere. And that actually to maybe we close up the conversation with, um, you know, you had talked about how, uh, you know, we could say modal share, uh, the share of, uh, trips taken by bike or the number of bikes being sold, um, not just for recreation, but for utility, you know, e-bikes primarily fall into a utility, uh, space with the exception of, you know, some performance mountain bikes and so on. But the uh, you're saying how Europe has seen far more adoption. Uh, what do you see as the differences between the European and U.S. markets, and you know the the things that would have to happen here uh, to see greater adoption of bicycles as a modality for you know not just uh, enthusiast riders, but recreation and and you know more importantly as a I think as a, a replacement for a number of automobile trips, which is where these cargo bikes come in. Right. Yeah, it's all about the facilities. You know, it's all about building out the infrastructure to, to make that viable. Um, you know, I mean, it's funny. I heard somebody else recently talk about Boulder and what great infrastructure we have. Relatively, um, relatively speaking. Yeah, it must mean the rest of the country is really pretty bad because there's a lot. There's a lot of improvements that could still be made in Boulder. It's still pretty, pretty awful. Uh, I think. Um, mm -hmm. And I, you know, I haven't traveled as much the last few years because of COVID, but before that I did a lot. And, um, you know, I think, uh, places like, you know, I think of Vancouver primarily, uh, they've done some amazing things there with their infrastructure and they've been just pretty ruthless about coming in and saying, yeah, we're going to redo this entire, you know, intersection that used to be some, uh, you know, horrendous cloverleaf and we're just going to slow it down and we're going to build bike paths through the middle of it to, um, to make it easier to get through here on a bike. And yes, it's going to slow down cars. Um, and uh, unfortunately, it's harder to do that in the U.S. Uh, it's hard, sure. harder to build infrastructure. Uh, there's a lot of NIMBYs. There's a lot of regulations. There's a lot of uh, cost factors that um, slow a lot of that stuff down a lot. Um, so, you know, the good news is there's a lot of potential to 
improve. <laughs> I mean, I look at Boulder and, you know, yeah, it has great infrastructure. It also has a ton of car traffic. There's a ton of people in single occupant cars sitting in traffic all day. There's people backed up around the block waiting to go through the coffee drive through in their car, mm -hmm. their single mm -hmm. occupancy car that they're sitting there and idling in. Yeah. Um, pumping out. And that's Boulder, you know. Yeah. Um, Burning subsidized gas. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like I said, the good news is there's a lot, there's a lot of room for improvement, even in Boulder, uh, much less uh, uh, some other places. Yeah, so, I think... um, but, you know, every every time there's a little bit of improvement, that's, you know, that's another uh, another hundred e-cargo bikes sold. Maybe uh, it's too bad. It's not a hundred thousand more sold, but it's it's a hundred more sold. And um, so it, it, it's good to see. Yeah, I think there's this, um, you know, you, you get slightly better infrastructure and that gets a few more people on the road, which in turn gets a slightly bigger constituency to push for better infrastructure and gets drivers slightly more accustomed to, you know, sharing the roads with, with cyclists. But early on, you know, I, I, the numbers I've seen are generally around 5% is where there's something of a phase shift in terms of those dynamics and you start to, you know, it starts to get a little bit easier to get further adoption. Um, yeah. Some kind of tipping point, 5% of what? F uh, modal share. So of, of oh. all trips taken, um, 5% by bike. And I believe in places like the Netherlands, um, uh, actually, uh, just had Anna Mariah Rook, uh, on the pod not too long ago. She might know this. She's from there. Um, but I recall reading like on the order of like, you know, 30, 40, 50% modal share, maybe more. I'll have to, uh, look that up at some point. And that's a, a fundamentally different dynamic. It's, it's highly normalized. It's abnormal to, um, you know, to take a car for no good reason. And the infrastructure is there to support it in part because there are enough people to agitate for the infrastructure. Um, and then you get into congestion charges and downtowns and things like this that might, um, help to nudge some of this, um, you know, convenient for the driver, but um, detrimental to everyone else behavior of uh, single occupancy vehicles going for short distances to do everything that you could otherwise do with a, an e-cargo bike or, or even just on foot, frankly. Um, right. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a hard push and it's just, it's just these little marginal improvements, you know, I mean, uh, I'm in Longmont right now. If, if, um, you know, if they could figure out how to make an east-west bike route in this city so that I could get from here to uh, where where I want to go on the on the east side of town without having to go through, you know, umpteen really horrible, unsafe intersections. And yeah, um, it would increase, you know, that, that, that would be that would be 10 more e-cargo bikes sold in Longmont this year. Um, but, it, you know, it takes that one one project and there's just a million of those projects all around the country everywhere you look you know including in progressive places like boulder and well, longmont. And i mean places like boulder and longmont were built in the car era and so you have yeah. european cities where which were built when you know having a horse was a big deal <laughs> so things right. tend to be closer together and uh also the zoning tended to be um, more commingled with businesses and shops and and uh, residential versus the way we do it here you have a bunch of residential and then a bunch of big box stores and then maybe you have a downtown that's uh being threatened by the big box stores or that's really high-end and boutique -y. yeah well you know boston was 
famously laid out before the automobile. So uh, there's some potential there. Let the cows out of the pasture, follow where right. they go, and lay out the roads that way. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, I used to live in Santa Fe, and it was uh, we were lobbying to get some uh, bike infrastructure built there. And the mayor said something about, you know, when they laid out this city of Santa Fe in 1612, they weren't thinking of bicycles. Like, well, they weren't thinking of SUVs either in 1612, you know, they were thinking yeah. of burrows. I think the burrows are a little closer to a bicycle than, than your uh, tundra is, but uh, there aren't that many cities in the U.S. that, that were uh, laid out that way. Yeah, bikes bikes also, I, I, you kind of touched upon, um, they, they kind of fall into the broader culture wars. I think in a, in a big way for, for some people like bike infrastructure means you're going to get the, uh, you know, these, uh, a certain type of person that they don't identify with. Uh, just put it that way. Yeah. Um, yeah, it falls on that somehow. It's, it's a, it's a woke conspiracy of bicycles. Yeah. Um, I, I saw a headline yesterday that, uh, Pete Buttigieg is being blamed for the, uh, e-bike fires in New York city. So, um, yeah, that makes sense. Because he's the head of transportation, and the yeah. uh, the fight the fight against the regulatory. The, the, actually, um, Anna Mariah Rook uh, brought this up too because she's been doing a, a bit of reporting uh, on that uh, the the various fires happening there. And well, you know, some of those parties may be the same pushing for you know uh, pushing against any sort of regulation of business activities, and you know yeah. that's a that is very much a, a regulatory issue. You know, having uh, consumer protections, as an example, in that particular case, of these dangerous batteries. Um, yep. Yeah, well, it's fun. Lots well, of Steve, issues. I, I got into the whole New York thing with some people a few weeks ago. And uh, yeah, it's very deep. You can you can go down a really, really deep rabbit hole there. Well, it's, you know, you get, a, you get I mean, one of the challenges is you get rid of these low cost e-bikes and all of a sudden the livelihoods of a huge swath of the uh, population, generally um, immigrant population, are out of work. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And who are they serving? Well, it's it's all these delivery companies um, that are, you know, sending food and whatever Nick impulse buy uh, to, you know, wealthier people nearby. And so you don't have to walk out of your house to to go get your knickknack. I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I, you know, what I know about New York, you know, it's from watching Seinfeld, but you know, <laughs> it appears to me that uh, these people live in tiny apartments with no kitchens, and so they rely on getting uh, Chinese takeout uh, five nights a week. Which yeah, requires apparently now requires low cost e bikes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, cracking down on non UL listed batteries means you know Jerry and uh, Kramer can't get their Chinese food every night. So <laughs> I don't know. The or their soup, or their soup, which you have to show up in person for, and maybe they don't give yeah, you. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, you can't get the soup delivery. That's yeah. Um, well, Steve, it's uh, always a pleasure to catch up with you. I look forward to doing it again in a few months, as as we tend to do every so often. Yeah. And, um, Come out to Boulder again. There's plenty of lots more riding to do. Sounds good. Thanks, Steve. All right. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Gravel Ride Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation between Randall and Steven. I know I learned a lot and always good to hear Steven's voice. 
Big thanks to our friends at Dynamic Cyclist for supporting the show this week. Remember, they've got a one-week free trial of their stretching and strengthening routines over at dynamiccyclist.com. And if you're interested in continuing on with their program, they're offering Gravel Ride podcast listeners 15% off using the code THEGRAVELRIDE. If you're able to support the show, please visit buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride or take a minute to give us a rating or review. Those five-star ratings go a long way in helping other gravel cyclists discover our content. You can always catch up with myself and Randall at The Ridership. That's www.theridership.com. That's a free global cycling community we created a couple years ago to connect gravel and adventure cyclists from all over the world. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels. <laughs>